Uh, this morning we're carrying on in our series in the book of James, and it's such a great, rich book, and we're, I'm delighted that uh, David Wood is here to, to share with us today. David is, uh, uh, an, I call him our adjunct preacher. Um, he regularly comes and, and shares at Hillside. We love him dearly. He's been coming for many, many years now. Um, David's married, has, has three children, all almost like adults, really, and married to Karen. Um, he's uh, associate pastor at, at Coquitlam Alliance, has served there for like 18 years or 19 years or long time since ancient days. And, uh, and he also is a professor o- over at uh, Pacific Life Bible College, teaches there as an adjunct, uh, one of their adjunct professors as well. So we're really privileged to have him come. Let's give him a, a warm hillside welcome this morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, what a, what a great introduction. No. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's so good to be here. I always say that, and I always mean it, because I love coming to Hillside. And uh, every time I come, there's something slightly different. It looks like you've done some... Well, there's no house out there. That's one thing that's different. Um, that way, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Derwin asked me to um, carry on in the series on James, and James is so much fun. Um, in, in, well, he's fun, but he's also tough. And uh, the passage that we're going to be exploring today is found in uh, James chapter 5. No, no, just kidding. James chapter 2. <laughs> James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Um, and one of the themes that comes up in this passage uh, is, is actually it's a theme that comes up in Scripture as a whole. It's, it's a theme of money, money and status and money and wealth. And... In particular, how, how money, wealth can give a person, can mess up a person's mind, can give you a sense of entitlement, it can mess you up spiritually in some ways. And when I was preparing this message, I was thinking of an experience that I had 30 years ago. I can't, like who, I feel old when I say 30 years ago and I'm still an adult. Um, but it was like, it was 30 years ago, and I was um, working in a hotel in the southwest part of China, a city called Kunming. And I worked in a four-star hotel um, in the city of Kunming. And my job, I was a lobby manager. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty high-level job, lobby manager. And uh, so I worked in the lobby, and, uh, but one of the things I had to do in this job is I had to, every now and then, help the person in accounts receivable get money that was owed to the hotel. Because back then, in the olden days, uh, well, in, in China, there was no credit card system or anything like that. And so, but a lot of businesses, if they were to do business, they couldn't rent offices, so they just rent rooms in hotels. And so there'd often be many businesses that would just be operating, and they would stay in these hotels for months upon months. And so there's this one company... Um, this guy, the head of the company, uh, he'd been in the hotel for, for many, many months and uh, had not paid. And, uh, I, and so the accounts receivable person, she came by and she says, hey, owe us 15,000 yuan, which back then, I mean, that was a fair amount of money. And she goes, I've knocked on his door. I've called him. I said, he said, he just won't respond. Can you help me? I'm like, all right. I'm lobby manager. That's what I do. So I, <laughs> um, so I went with her. We went up to the room, and we knocked on the door, and we could hear that he was inside there. And we're like, um, 
you know, this is, this is the accounts receivable, can you open up, right? <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> this is police, open up. Um, and, and we could hear him inside, he wouldn't open up. And so I said, well, do you have the master key? Yeah, okay. I said, let's just go in. It's China. We're not going to get arrested for doing that. So we just went in. Uh, just went into the, uh, to the room, and the guy's there. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, um, just saying, you know, you've been here for a number of months. We're really polite. Like, you've been here for a number of months. You, you owe the hotel 15,000 yuan. Um, can you pay it? He goes, do you know who I am? Do you know like 15,000 yuan? He goes, that's nothing. He goes, get out. I'm like, sorry. Um, we're not going to get out because you still owe us some money. And so can you pay us the money that you owe? He goes, fine, fine. And it was right out of a movie, right? He has this briefcase on his desk, <laughs> opens it up full of money. And, like, yeah. And so he grabs a stack a stack of money, and he looks at it, and he throws it at us <laughs> on the ground. Like, he just, he goes, now, get out. And I thought, you punk. What? <laughs> I actually had different words, but um, <laughs> English and Chinese. Um, but I thought, what, what would cause a person to do this? I mean, he just treated us like, like we were scum. And to him, we were just these low-level employees. And he just treated us like dirt. And, and so the love of money, this, this, the desire for status that runs in people's hearts, um, that causes people to overestimate their importance and to treat other people poorly, I mean, it's a theme that runs throughout all human society. But here's the thing. It actually shows up in the church as well. That's James's point in the passage that we're going to look at. So if you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. This is what James says. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. He says, My brothers, my brothers and sisters, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are, are they not the ones who, who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For the judgment, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus, can you speak to us this morning? And give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. Give us eyes to see and a, a heart that's ready to receive from, from you. And then the courage to respond to what you say to us, how you call us. We need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what's going on in this passage? Well, among many other things, it looks as if in this church that James is talking to... It seems as if people were judging others on the basis of how they looked, on the basis in particular of their wealth and status. And James sees this happening in the church. He says, you know, in your assembly, a poor man in shabby clothes comes in, uh, and and then a a man with a gold ring and fine clothing comes in, and to the rich people you say, oh, hey, sit in this nice seat, and to the poor person you say, stand over in the corner. And James sees this happening, and he does not mince his words. What does he say? He says, first off, he says, why are you judging people by their appearances? He says, why are you so impressed with ringed fingers and fancy clothes? Why do you give these guys the attention? Literally, it means why do you lift up your face to them? Why do you offer them the nice seats? Why do you get them something to drink? And why do you ignore the poor in your midst? You treat the poor like dirt, telling them to stand out of the way or to sit at your feet. Why are you making these kind of distinctions? That's not right. And now, we read that and we're like, yeah, of course, go after them, James. That's not right. But you have to realize... In the context of the Greco-Roman world in the first century, what James is saying is highly in contrast to the way things were. In the entire ancient world, the gulf between the rich and the poor was so great, it was impossible to bridge. It's not like you could be poor and say, you know, someday, someday I'm going to be, I'm going to make it in this world. No, if you're poor, you're going to stay poor. That's just the way it was. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, 99.9% of the population were not rich. Like maybe 0.1% of the population was rich. So you had the aristocracy, you had merchants, and then you had the poor, slaves. And here's the thing. In the Greco-Roman world, nobody liked the poor. They kind of look down on the poor. There's one historian, a woman named Helen Reed. This is what she says. She goes, Roman authors typically presented the urban poor as an idle mob whose grievances and moral defects such as laziness led them to crimes, to riots, to sedition. They were a threat. The poor were a threat to social harmony and stability. And he says all the poor cared about was food and going to the circus, watching the gladiators fight. Cicero described the poor as, quote, the poverty-stricken scum of the city. 
kind of lays it out. The scum of the earth. (laughs) If you are poor, that is how you are seen. And again, the chances of you not being poor were almost non-existent. That's how the world was structured. If you're poor, you stayed poor. If you're rich, you stayed rich. And so it's interesting because you know there's a famous line by Socrates. Socrates says, know thyself. And we hear that and we think, know thyself. What Socrates is saying, just look inside yourself, know who you are. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, know your position and stay there. Right? Yeah, don't get it. Don't, 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 don't map uh, post, post-modernity onto Socrates. He says, know yourself, know your station and stay there. And so this is the way society is structured. And in the middle of this reality, this ragtag movement called Christianity emerges. And it offers a different vision of reality. And this new vision of reality, to be honest, actually made the Romans pretty uneasy. I'm teaching a class right now at our church um, that's basically, I, I called it Destroyer of the Gods. And we're looking at the first three centuries of the church and how the church navigated in the Roman Empire. It's geeky, but it's a lot of fun. Um, But this whole movement, this Christian movement, made the Romans uneasy because this whole idea of equality was completely unheard of. And it caused a lot of Roman philosophers to be suspicious and even to hate Christianity. There's a guy named Celsus. He's like the Christopher Hitchens of the first or the second century. He's hated the Christians. And uh, he was ruthless in his criticism towards the Christians. But one of the things that he hated about the Christians is the way they included everybody. He says, these Christians, it's Celsus. Celsus says, these Christians, he goes, they're a weird bunch. Because there's women in their midst. There's slaves in their midst. There's a rich. And there's even foreigners. And they're treating them all as brothers and sisters. Who does that? And that is one of the main criticisms that's thrown against the church. What kind of society doesn't make distinctions between people? And so the church offered a vision of reality that threatened the very fabric of the Roman world. But as our passage says, it looks as if the church was not immune to the influences of the world where the rich were fawned over and the poor were treated like scum. Now James sees this. He sees this and he's livid. Does not pull his punches. He says, what? Do not judge by appearances. Just because people waltz into your church wearing fancy clothes and nice rings does not mean you should show them favoritism. And he says, you don't do this. Why don't you do this? Because it runs up against the gospel. That's not what the gospel is all about. As Christians, he says, where's our faith found? It's an interesting phrase that he uses. He says, our faith is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's a very interesting phrase that James, you don't come across this anywhere else. The Lord of glory. What is he saying? Well, he's saying there's only one kind of glory that should capture your heart. There's only one kind of glory that should capture your heart, and it is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
any other bling, <laughs> people come in wearing fancy clothing, anything else, he goes, is a cheap imitation. It's false glory. So why are you sucked in to something that is false glory? When you are called to worship the true king of glory. And so James's response underlines a key truth in scripture, and we have to get this, is that the gospel teaches us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Ephesians 2 reminds us that every one of us, apart from the glorious work of Jesus Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. We are the walking dead. And James is essentially saying, you know, why are you impressed with people wearing fancy clothes and rings? And I, He goes, they're just a walking dead. It's like putting, dressing up a, a, a corpse. There's only one glory that you should be impressed with, and that is the glory of our king of glory. So the first point he makes is like, don't, don't be showing favoritism. And the second thing he says, he says, you know what? As a church, you're to live differently from the world. Look what he says in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, he goes, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James, he's, he's reminding the church that the way of Christ looks very different from the world. And in many ways, the values of the church turns the world upside down. Because what is the world value? Values the impressive, right? It values celebrities in our culture today. It's, it's celebrities is, is, is the new aristocracy, right? Um, it's, it's impressed with how many Instagram followers you have or how much money you make or where you live matters or how big your house matters. And, and it's easy to get sucked into this. It's easy to get sucked into the values of the world. And that's why I love what Paul says in, in, um, in Ephesians 4. He says, he goes, but you're different. He says, that's not the way you learn Christ. That's not how you learn Christ. How do we learn Christ? Well, we put off our old self. We put on our new self. And the way of Christ looks different from the world around you. The world's impressed with money and status. And you have to get this. It's not like wealth is inherently evil. It's, it's not, that's not what James is saying. And it, it's just that wealth and fame in God's economy don't matter. They really don't matter. What is important is how we live before Christ. And that's why James says something. It's, again, it's easy to miss this, but you'll never come across this in a letter where James actually, in his letter, he actually says, listen up. That's what the Greek is actually saying, so, which is strange in, in a letter. But at one point he says, all right, listen up. Listen up. You who are fawning over the rich, giving them seats of honor, telling the poor to sit in the corner, do you not remember? And here you have a complete echo of the teachings of Jesus. He says, do you not remember the Sermon on the Mount? That's what he's referring to. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? What did, what did our Lord teach us? He taught us, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then in, or in Luke, blessed are the poor. And what is he saying? He's not saying simply because you're poor, you're blessed, or simply because you're rich, you're cursed. 
But what he's saying is that our posture before God is to recognize our complete poverty, that we need his grace. Remember that old hymn? Nothing in my hand I bring. What's the next line? Yeah, simply to the cross I cling. Only when our hearts see our absolute poverty before God can we understand how badly we need him. But in our passage, the church has forgotten this. It's closed its eyes to Jesus' teaching and it's blended in with the world. And that's why James is so angry because the poor are being treated like scum. And it gets worse. James is so mad. He says, these guys... These guys that you're so impressed with, here, have a nice seat. Hey, can I get you something to drink? He goes, these are the people that are actually dragging the poor off to court. Because these are the guys who are, who, are, who are doing lawsuits against the vulnerable. And you are getting them coffee. What is the matter with you? And in the first century, apparently, if you, if you, were, if you, were, um, if you had power, if you had means and somebody owed you money, and there's a lot of loan sharks going on in, in the first century, if somebody owed you money, you would hire somebody, and they would grab them by the scruff of the neck at any point on the street and drag them into court or drag them into prison until they paid you back. And James is saying, these guys that you're like, oh, hey, have a seat, they're the ones that are dragging our own people into court. You see why he's so mad. He's so mad at this. Ah. He says, the rich, you're so preoccupied, or the church is so preoccupied with treating the rich with deference. These are the guys that are causing problems. And so what he's pointing out, he says, you know what? How you're living as a church, you're just acting like the world. You're acting like the Roman society. Now, good thing the church today does not get influenced by the world anymore. I mean, I was thinking about this this week. I said, in what ways is the church influenced by the world? And I came up with 37 ways. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to mention two. Um, I think one of the ways the church is influenced by the world in, in, in this, especially when it comes to money and status, is sometimes as a church, we have, I don't know how it's come about. Actually, I do. I have an idea. Um, where we have equated riches with a person's riches and status, we've equated that with blessing. And you see this all throughout church history. I mean, some of you have been to old churches, you'll see the pews that have locks on them. Have you ever seen that? You know, the little pews, you go to sit down and there's a door and it shuts and there's a lock. And, and you would pay a certain amount of money to have your pew. And... Um, the richer you were, the closer you were up to the front of, to, to see the pastor. <laughs> it was the olden days, right? Um, and then in the back, the poor would sit in the back, right? <laughs> you don't see that happening as much. Uh, but here's the, here's the thinking. And, and, and the idea is this, is that because you're rich, you are worthy. You must be special if someone is rich, they must be blessed by God and therefore godly. If you can handle money well, obviously you can handle spiritual things well. And sometimes the church has placed into leadership people 
simply because they're financially successful. Oh, I can give you so many examples of this. I, I know a church in particular that comes to mind. I won't say the church, but the church, all the elders are all CEOs. And so, of course, if you're a CEO, you can lead a church. And you have to be godly because you're very successful in business. And the whole board is made up of CEOs, and they basically roll their eyes at anybody who's not a CEO. They roll their eyes. One time, this guy, a pastor friend of mine, wrote something and submitted it, and the, the head of the elders board looked at it and goes, he goes, who wrote this? He goes, this looks like it was written by a pastor, as if that was like the lowest of lows. So the thinking goes, if you're poor and ignorant, you must be, well, one, not blessed, and two, you're probably sinful. Now, this way of thinking has actually poisoned the North American church. And by export, it has poisoned the church in Africa. It's got a name. It's called the Health Wealth Gospel. Some of the guys, and I have no problem saying their names, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joel Olstein. There's more. But the thinking is that if a person, that God wants you to be rich, and if a person is rich and successful, well, then that's a sign of God's favor. If you're poor and unsuccessful, it means God has not favored you. And this health wealth gospel runs through the church in North America. And here's the thing, it's opposite to the gospel. It's a heresy, and it's absolute poison. Now, don't mishear me. Having money should not disqualify you from leadership, but it also doesn't qualify you for leadership. It's neither here nor there. The question is, as Paul says, is whether or not you've learned Christ, right? And so I think that's one of the ways we see how the church blends in with the uh, world. The other thing is that I think you see an example here of a tendency to categorize people. And I see us still doing the same kind of thing. It doesn't just apply to the rich and the poor. I think we have a tendency within our culture and, and even within the church to look at people and to put them into boxes and to categorize them. And we do that for a number of reasons because when we put a person in a box, we can control them. We can also write them off. And so we say to somebody, oh, the person cares about the environment. <laughs> probably a liberal, right? Oh, you're a conservative. Well, you're probably a Christian and therefore a bigot and a hater. Um, that person's old. They're probably out of touch. That person's a millennial, probably lazy. Now, we see this happen quite often. There's a guy named David Nystrom. He's an interesting guy. He's a New Testament scholar. Simon, do you, have you heard of David Nystrom? No? He's, a, he's an interesting guy. Um, he, um, he tells a story of being at a denominational conference. And at the conference, part of the, the denominational gathering, there's a special gathering one night uh, for dinner of, of uh, you know, 50 of the denominational leaders. And David Nystrom was one of the guys. Again, he's a New Testament scholar. And while he's there, he's like in a hotel room or a hotel suite. There's um, servers there pouring drinks or whatever. But there weren't enough servers. There were more people than servers to actually pour all the drinks. And 
David Nystrom was there, and he's looking around, and he's like, oh, okay, maybe I'll help out. So he just grabs some, and he starts pouring drinks. Now, he's wearing a suit, and the suit kind of blended in with the uh, servers, right? And uh, this one guy comes up, denominational leader, and sees David Nystrom, and David's like, oh, can I get you a drink? And the guy goes, I'll take the drink. And David starts talking to him, and the guy goes, he just, he just kind of blew him off. He's like, just give me my drink, right? David and I, okay, whatever. Um, but then later on, the funny part was is that they, they gathered everybody in and there was a sermon that night and so they were going to reflect upon the sermon. And uh, the guy who kind of was rude to David Nystrom was sitting in front of David Nystrom. He was just behind him. And uh, the guy who's leading the denominational meeting says, all right, that was a good sermon tonight, but there's some questions that came up that we need some help with. So I'm going to call upon our New Testament ec- expert with us, uh, resident expert, David Nystrom, to kind of uh, uh, to, to respond to this. And he's behind, and so David stands up, and the guy in front of him is like, oh, you're the New Testament. <laughs> and the weird part was, is after the meeting, the guy comes up to David Nystrom and did not make any reference to the previous encounter, and he starts fawning and flattering over him, right? And it's just like, oh. But I think this idea is very easy for us to throw people into categories. And too often we give people status according to whatever category we place them into, rather than dealing with them as human beings. And that's the danger when we put a person into a category. We dehumanize them. When we, ca- when we throw somebody into a box, it either binds us or blinds us. When we throw them into the box that we like, we're like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, I'm on your side because you're, you're one of me, right? You're one of us, right? You're in the... Or it blinds us and it's just like, I'm going to write you off. It doesn't matter what you, who you actually are, I've already put you into a box, Categories give us the idea that we can write people off. And when we write people off, we're no longer honoring their humanness. And so I want to encourage us as a church, that's not the way of Christ. But I'll tell you, we live in a world today, especially through social media, where we just build echo chambers around ourselves. This is, we just listen to who we want to listen to, and it's easy to do that and to write off other people. But we re- that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is, is, to, is to treat one another with, with dignity and value. And James says, you know, you try to blend in with the world, you, you're, you're in deep trouble. And here's the thing. I've said this before, but as a church, if we just try to blend in with the world, try to fit in, What's the point? Like any church that tries to blend in and be just like the world begs the question, why bother going to church? There has to be something distinct about us as a community. Okay, the last thing that comes out of this passage, Paul, uh, James says, don't judge by appearances, live differently from the world. And the third thing he mentions is we need to choose mercy over judgment. And this is the last part. Look what he says. In verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. James confronts the church by asking them an important question. He says, what kind of law do you want to live under? He says, there's two kind of laws you can live under. You could live under the law of judgment or the law of mercy. 
Which law are you going to live under? He says, you guys who are judging people, you're judging them on their appearance. You like judging. Okay. You're going to live under the law of judgment, then you have to recognize and that law is going to come up against you. And the law of judgment says this. It's, it's a law of righteousness. You better be righteous. If you're going to be judging others, you better be perfect. But here's the thing. You step out of line, you break one commandment, and you're done. He says, which law would you rather live under? Would you want to live under a law where you're going to be judging other people? Or you want to live under the law where there's mercy? Which one? Your mercy. And here's the thing, though. Here's a, that's the right answer. Mercy. <laughs> well, the problem is, we, and we would say that, right? But the problem is a lot of people live as if the cross does not exist, right? If you live a life without the cross, then all you're left with is judgment. If the cross doesn't exist, then you're going to live your life trying to be slightly better than the other person, right? Because I could say, well, at least, <laughs> yeah, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than Derwin, right? <laughs> right? I'm, I, I, yeah, and so compared to, I'm doing pretty good, right? But the thing is, that, I, yeah, yeah. It shouldn't because you live under mercy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what James is getting at. He's, he says, you want to live a judgmental life where you write people off because they're poor or you elevate them simply because they're rich? You want to live that kind of judgmental life? He goes, it's going to throw back, it's going to come right up against you. And I find, from my experience, and Darwin, you maybe reiterate, um, confirm this, I find that people who live judgmental lives struggle with two things. They struggle with pride. Well, at least I'm better than you. But they also struggle with self-hatred. Because the moment they mess up, they're like, oh, they feel the weight. And I've seen that. I've seen that with people who, who struggle with kind of self-righteousness. There's a pride, but there's also a sense like, I'm in a lot of trouble because I messed up. And when they mess up, they try to hide it. They mask it. They, they, so they live double lives, hypocrisy, all that sort of thing. James is saying, oh, come on, which life do you want to live? Do you really want to live under that life? Why not live under the royal law, which is the law of mercy, where there is judgment, but that fell upon Jesus. Jesus took our judgment, and he set us free. And when you live under that freedom, that, you know, in, in Amazing Grace, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. I'm a sinner. I'm in a lot of trouble. But grace, thy fears relieve, my fears relieved. And James lays that out at the end. He says, which law do you want to live under? Do you want to live under the cross or try to live without the cross? When we get this, when we understand the cross and the fact that we're all Apart from the grace of God, we are all toast. We are all in deep trouble. Um, when we truly get that, it sets us free, right? Because then I'll look at every person and just say, you know what? You're just like me. I'm just like you. We're all human. And that's what James is inviting us into, is to be a church that doesn't, you know, we don't get impressed with people's status. But on the other hand, we value people from all different walks of life. 
And that was, that was a game changer for the church. One of the reasons why the church overwhelmed the Roman Empire. You think about this. Think about this. If you were a, a slave living in the Roman Empire, you weren't even a human being. You were a thing. You had nothing. And many people were like sex slaves or just the lowest of lowest slaves. You didn't have a name. You had no name. You were just, you were just a tool. No dignity, no value. And yet on Sunday morning, you'd come together and you'd stand beside someone who is rich and someone in the aristocracy and you're a slave. And the rich person would, would, would pass bread to you or would pass wine to you and call you by name. And you would call each other by name. And, and, and the rich person would look to you and say, my brother. And you'd look to them and you'd say, my brother, my sister, my sister. You tell me that wouldn't be a game changer? That's one of the reasons why the church grew the way it did. Is because it didn't make those distinctions. It says, you know, in Christ the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in this together. And I think we need to reflect that, that heart. I have a buddy of mine, his name's Rudy. Uh, I don't know if you remember Rudy. Rudy. He's a guy who I've known for years. Rudy, if he spoke to the queen or somebody on the downtown East Hastings Street, doesn't matter who he speaks to, he's the same guy and he speaks to them in the same way. He's not impressed with, the, with anything. He's just who he is. And he's he speaks to people as human beings. And I'd love to be like that. And I think as a church, we need to be that way. So Jesus is, or James is calling us back to the way of Jesus. Was Jesus impressed with the rich? Nah. Did he shun the poor? No. He cared very little about a person's status, but he saw their humanness. He saw their need. And I think we need to be that kind of people. I think that's what comes out of this passage. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. And your word cuts to the heart because we confess that often certain types of people impress us. And sometimes we write people off because we throw them into a box. We make distinctions, and these distinctions bleed their way into the church. But as your servant Paul says, that's not the way we've learned Christ. And so help us to live our lives under mercy, under the cross, recognizing that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us, doesn't matter how big our bank account is, doesn't matter where we live, but every single one of us is in desperate need of your mercy and grace. And so help us to be a church that looks deeply into one another's life. That we would truly look at one another as human beings, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and not to throw each other into a box or into a category. That's not easy to do, but we desire to be fully human. One of your followers, Jesus, said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive, and that's who we want to be. That's what we want to be, fully alive. And to that end, we ask for your mercy. 
In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to leave you with a benediction in a moment. Um, invite you, if you'd like to, if God is calling you to respond to him, uh, spend some time in prayer. You can pray where you're at, or I believe there'll be um, people here willing to pray with you up front, just on, onto this side here. But let me leave you these words in the book of First Peter. This is what Peter's calling us to. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. For we were once straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in his grace. Amen.